Do you ever wonder who makes your clothes? My 2017 New Year's resolution was to learn more about my clothes and where they come from. While the world of sustainable clothing can be complicated and overwhelming, Tomga Designs makes the choice to buy sustainable easy. Anything you want to know about their manufacturing process can be found on their website, including pictures. Their website also has a new feature that calculates the real-world impact of each garment in terms of water, energy, and emissions saved. While their business practices will make you feel good, their colorful designs and soft eco-fabrics will make you look good, too. If you're like me, you'll fall in love. If you go to www.tomgadesigns.com, that's T-A-M-G-A Designs, you can try it out for yourself. And if you use the discount code MP15, our friends at Tomga Designs will give you 15% off. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Jess Phoenix, volcanologist and Democratic candidate for California's 25th Congressional District. Thanks for coming on, Jess. Thanks so much for having me, Jordan. This is fantastic. Yeah, we're glad to have you on. So for starters, could you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure. Uh, where to start? Uh, I guess the easiest easiest way is to begin with the fact that, you know, it sort of ties into why I'm running. It's that I'm a scientist. I research active volcanoes and I co-founded, um, along with my spouse, a uh, nonprofit that does environmental science research and education. And we provide research opportunities to um, largely women and people of color and uh, students from low-income backgrounds. So politics wasn't on my radar. I was happy being a scientist, but with Trump's election and with these attacks on facts and evidence and the truth, uh, you know, that are coming from all quarters and are impacting all different people and all, you know, from all walks of life and all backgrounds, I thought, you know what, we need people to stand up for truth and objectivity. And so here I am. <laughs> yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about the work you did at the nonprofit? I'm glad you asked. Uh, this is the time of year when we send out the first expeditions of our year. And so we have a crew out right now in the Mojave Desert here in California. And uh, I'm a geologist, but we have biologists, hydrologists, atmospheric scientists, uh, and engineers. And uh, we have supervisory scientists who come from uh, academia. They come from the private sector. They come from government jobs. They volunteer their time. And they work with students from around California and around, around the country. We haven't gone international yet, but I'm thinking that's going to happen soon. But uh, these are students who a lot of them couldn't afford to do a field research program where they'd have to pay for it. So right now we have funding where we can actually cover student expenses if they can get to Los Angeles or Las Vegas. So from there, we're able to cover all of their costs for participating and we give them opportunities to do hands-on research. So we're trying to create a real blueprint of Earth's environments, starting with the desert. The students get to take part in that work and it's essential because it's going to help us solve humanitarian issues like deforestation, natural resources projects, making sure that we rehabilitate the land after the natural resources are, you know, finished being used, and then someday for space exploration. So it's a really far-ranging project. The students we take out into the field, college and university-aged students, we have an elementary school program, too, that works with, uh, right now we are with uh, predominantly uh, Hispanic and Latino students in a school that is a STEAM academy. So they do science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. 
And we bring scientists into the classroom for these kids, second through fifth graders, and we show them that, yes, they can be scientists. And we do hands-on activities and we try to give them good science role models so that someday they can, and, and actually starting now, they can see themselves as scientists and take that with them as they go into the world. So as a scientist, what drove you to run for Congress in particular? Why this seat? You know, it's actually, a lot of it has to do with with my opponent. He's a Republican, Steve Knight. He's had the seat for just a couple of years and he, oh man, <laughs> he's voted 98% with Trump uh, since Trump took office and the laundry list is so long. He supported Proposition 8, which some people may remember is an anti-marriage equality piece of legislation in California that was ruled unconstitutional. He voted for the latest GOP tax scam slash bill, which actually hurts people directly in our district. He voted to take away health care from 70,000 people in our community. There were so many things, but but the real kicker for me is that Knight serves on the House Science Committee, and he is a climate science denier. He's actually said California's preparations for climate change were, quote unquote, foolish. And, uh, and this is a guy who voted for that tax bill that denied the ability to deduct disasters, including wildfires like we just had, from people's taxes. So, I mean, he's really just voting against the interests of our community. And I can't abide by that. So a Democrat hasn't won election to this seat since 1990. What do you think makes this year different? Well, I mean, just having Trump in office is a big thing. But I also think it's it's not so much just Trump. It's the flow through effect of having him there, which has been engaging people and energizing people. And people are finding their voices in a way that they never have before. And the interesting thing about our district, California's 25th, is that it actually now has more registered Democrats than Republicans. The tide is turning. It's not a huge margin, but the district actually did also vote for Hillary by 7%. And Knight just barely hung on to his seat. Plus, he's not very good at individual fundraising. He gets most of his money from corporate PACs and from GOP dark money sources. So he is somebody who doesn't have like a huge broad base of popular support. And he's someone when you point out to people in the community who may not be engaged politically, when I talk to them and I say, did you know he voted to take away health care? Did you know he voted this way on the tax bill? They are shocked, a lot of them. And they said, I had no idea. I just voted for him because his name was familiar. So you're one of seven Democratic candidates in this race. What do you think makes you stand out in this crowd? It's a really good thing that you've asked because um, it's uh, it's funny that it's seven right now. The number changes. Uh, you know, it's every day it seems like there's somebody else filing, but I've been in the race uh, uh, since April. And I think that what really distinguishes me is that, you know, I'm a scientist. I'm a field scientist. So creative problem solving is what I do. And it's, uh, I bring a worldview to the table that is really focused on facts and evidence. And of course, you've got to, you've got to be collaborative too, when you work with people in the scientific world, because, you know, you never know who's going to be able to teach you something. That combined with the fact that I am uh, one of the, well, actually, I'm the most progressive candidate in the race, because I believe that that, you know, we need to run our country based on our ideals and we need to set those ideals up as shining beacons and then we need to navigate towards them. You should basically be making policies around your ideals. And I think that's what the progressive vision really 
captures. And that's what we're missing right now is people who are willing to stand up and be bold. I think we need people who are going to be courageous about their convictions because we are in a time of turmoil and people want to know where you stand. And we want leaders who we can get excited about. For me, it's not a career choice. This is answering a call to solve a problem. That's just so important in this day and age is having people who step up to answer the call who aren't doing this for their own resume. They're doing it to solve problems. So what are the ideals fundamentally driving your candidacy. A few of them are things that I believe that we should be working towards positively, and a few others are things that we shouldn't be doing. So positively, I would love to see healthcare for everybody. Medicare for all is something that I believe in very firmly for a number of reasons, but I also think it's kind of the logical next evolution in our democracy. I also am firmly in favor of bipartisan immigration reform. Uh, The system's broken, and we can fix it, and we can do a lot better. And that means we need a clean dream act, and we need it now. I'm also very much in favor of making sure that people can have debt-free educations, public educations. So that means we need to fund our public schools. We need to make sure that we are training teachers, paying them well, that we have resources available in the classrooms for the students and the teachers, and we can't be privatizing education. That sort of turns me into the things that I'm, I'm really adamant about, which is that we should not operate prisons, healthcare, or education for profit. And when I say healthcare, I mean insurance industry. We shouldn't have insurance companies making profits off of people's health. And then again, on the positive side, you know, obviously the environment, protecting the environment is a huge priority for me. And I also see that integrating really well with where we need to be going as a society that is tech-focused. We have such an, a dependence on technology, a reliance on it, and we're seeing automation becoming a larger and larger issue, whether it's service sector jobs or whether you're talking about you know automation in, in other areas of the workforce. It's something that we're going to need to have leaders in office who can address and say, ideally, we want a society where we can live in harmony with our tech. You know, Making sure that we're at the forefront of green technology and innovation in that space will allow us to satisfy a lot of the challenges of automation and allow us to uh, create jobs in a way that is going to benefit us and our relationship with the planet rather than harm it. Because right now there's just so many attacks on the environment. Everything we do has to be aware of the fact that we have limited resources on our planet. So we need to steward those. So you mentioned the need for a Clean Dream Act, and you're married to the son of a formerly undocumented immigrant. How does this shape your perspective on immigration? It, it is a huge factor for me, um, because I actually have cousin-in-laws who are undocumented. And I I didn't realize it was such a big problem, because I grew up, you know, I, I'm white and I have parents who are white and I grew up in, uh, you know, a very sheltered area in Colorado. You know, when I moved away from home and I started to live in different places, I became aware of the fact that, you know, documentation was a really big challenge for a lot of people. And before I even met my husband, I was teaching at Cal State University Los Angeles. I was a, I, I taught geology and oceanography there. And I was, I went planning a field trip for my geology students uh, to go to the Grand Canyon. And uh, I invited the whole class. I said, anyone who wants to come along is welcome to come on this. It's optional. And one of the students, one of my best students, Lisa, um, it's not her real name, but I don't want her to have any repercussions. So I'm modifying it. But Lisa came up to me and said, I'd love to go on this trip, but I can't. It's in Arizona. And I said, well, what's the problem? And, and she said, well, I'm undocumented and I'm afraid to leave the state. And it just blew my mind because here's a young woman who is bright, intelligent, 20 years old. And when I asked her more about her story, she told me that her parents had brought her to the United States when she was six weeks old. 
for her to face the threat of deportation when she's currently researching cardiac disease at Cedar sinai and contributing so much to our country's medical advances. For someone like that to be forced out, it just really cuts right to the heart of me. And then I see it that my husband was lucky. I mean, he was, his mom, when he was born, was undocumented uh, and she received amnesty through Ronald Reagan uh, during his administration. And that was, you know, because we had compassionate conservatives and now we don't. So we hear a lot about dreamers and this specific population of undocumented youth, but even the DREAM Act wouldn't address the entire undocumented population. I'm wondering what you would do as a member of Congress to advocate for undocumented Americans who don't necessarily have a spotless record and aren't necessarily pursuing the perfect job that impresses everyone. Right. And that makes sense because, you know, not everybody's perfect. Uh, It's, you know, just like any other group of people. Um, You're going to have some people who are overachievers and some people who are just living their lives. And I think that uh, the important thing is to make sure that we have people in office who listen to everybody. And that means everywhere from the community level up to the federal government, we need uh, decision makers and key people like community organizers to uh, get together with lawmakers and listen to members of the community and see what their concerns are, see what their support needs to be, and honestly, to understand um, why they may be here in this position. I think we need to understand the geopolitical context. For example, if, say, there's a war in Nicaragua or terrorism threats in, in, say, South Sudan or conflict in Eastern Europe and people have arrived here because, you know, that's the other thing is undocumented folks here in the U.S. are not just from Latin America. Uh, We actually have folks from all over the world who are in this situation. So we need to actually understand and make sure that people People are in office making decisions who will balance the human side of things with the the need to, you know, have a secure immigration process. So I think it's just it's humanizing and updating the system for the 21st century and for what we have on the ground right now, which is a massive amount of people who are here and they need a path to citizenship. They need to be treated as as humans, first and foremost. So shifting on to climate change, over the past two decades, we have seen conservatives move farther and farther right on the issue. Your current representative, of course, is a climate change denier. But just 15 years ago, Republicans like John McCain and Mitt Romney were talking about the urgency of combating climate change. Now they couldn't care less. Is it possible to win over skeptics? I think it is. And uh, it's something that I have had to deal with a lot, actually, in my career as a scientist and as an educator. And it really starts with asking questions because you, you're you not going to change someone's mind on an issue, on any issue, unless you understand why they believe what they believe. And so for me, it's about beginning a dialogue and asking questions. You know, why do you think that? Or, you know, where did you get that impression? Or where is your information coming from? And, you know, I've had discussions with people who've actually thought that the Grand Canyon was formed by Noah's flood and it's 6,000 years old, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, as a scientist, your initial urge is to go, of course not. But then you think, wait, 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 wait what is missing here from the conversation? And it's it's the reason that people think that way. Unfortunately, uh, for us, the people in Congress now who are denying climate change and the urgency of the situation, they know full well that the climate is changing and that people, 
you know, are causing a lot of that change. Anthropogenic or man-made climate change is real. Even Donald Trump, I mean, he actually submitted an application to build a seawall for his Ireland golf course. And the reason he wanted to build the seawall that he put in the application was sea levels due to rising climate change. And so, you know, when you see that, you know that he is just saying something because it serves his purposes. And that goes, that holds true for the people in government who are denying climate change. They have uh, more pressure than ever to get money from big corporate donors, a lot of whom are fossil fuel uh, industry folks. They want to maintain their offices because they are career politicians who depend on that office and therefore depend on donations in order to stay in office. So the whole thing ties into money and politics. And I think if you get money out of politics, like the big money, the dark money out, then you're going to see a whole lot more people legislating based on actual facts rather than on what makes their donors happy. One reason I think environmental issues are overlooked even in the Democratic Party is that it's hard to communicate the weight of something like climate change. You know, it's hard to really make the stakes concrete. The environment is such a huge thing that's so hard to conceptualize. So it doesn't quite hit us viscerally like, say, healthcare does. Could you explain the real tangible impact climate change has on Americans? It depends on where you live, but everywhere in the U.S. is going to be affected by the changing climate. You know, I'm fortunate at the moment to be in Southern California, where it's uh, like in the 70s and sunny today. But in, you know, the, a large chunk of the United States right now, they're getting snow dumped on them all the way down to Florida. You know, this is just one more instance where the climate, the shifting climate is affecting areas in ways that they weren't prepared for, didn't plan for, are not traditionally known for. And so I think it just depends, again, on where you are. In California, we're acutely aware of fires being a danger. For us, we have other natural hazards that are associated with fires, like landslides. Uh, after a landscape is all charred and burned, there's nothing holding it in place. So if you've got some rain, then you get landslides and mudslides, and that's also bad. Uh, but different parts of the country, they're going to see it harder to grow crops. They're going to see the shore moving up <laughs> closer to where people's houses are. It, it really is location specific. But I think what really taps into people uh, on a visceral level is when they see how wildlife is impacted by changing climate conditions. One of the most notable images that I saw at the end of 2017 last month um, was the image of the starving polar bear that was being shared. A lot of times animals are really good at hiding when they're in distress and, you know, environments as a whole, if you don't know what you're looking at, you might not know an environment is is in distress. When you see something like that, I think that, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words and it's true. So I think making sure that as we are talking with people, engaging with them about the environment, we're also showing them, showing them in concrete ways, not just figures and charts, but we're showing them images that really portray the devastation that different parts of the country and the world are starting to feel. And I just think that's the way that you get through to people. It's talking, it's listening, but it's also illustrating visually whenever you can what's actually happening. Digging deeper into the impact it has on people, when it comes to environmental disaster, pollution, and other consequences of climate change, people of color are disproportionately affected and disenfranchised. This is known as environmental racism. Could you tell us a little bit about environmental racism and how you'd like to deal with the intersection of racial justice and climate justice? I would love to. This is actually great. I have seen through the course of my career, uh, because I work in natural hazards, I've seen that 
people who typically live in hazard zones, whether that's a flood zone or they live near a plant that does manufacturing that may release toxic chemicals uh, into the air, soil and water, or folks who live in hazard zones uh, like along earthquake fault lines, um, potentially near volcanoes, they live in in flood zones, uh, along coastlines. These are people who can't necessarily afford to move. And a lot of the times these areas are available to live in cheaply because they have an undesirable element. There's a big issue with chemicals being released into the air from different manufacturing plants in parts of Los Angeles, just south of uh, downtown LA. But those communities are disproportionately people of color. And that holds true around the world. And I think that what you have to do, again, I don't want to speak for people of color, being that I'm not one, but what I want to do is make sure that those communities have voices to explain their situations and they are heard and listened to. I want to make sure that I can help create those opportunities when possible, but also we need to make sure that our leaders, um, you know, regardless of their backgrounds, are really tuned into educating all of the different communities in their, you know, the areas that they're responsible for about the different threats they face, uh, if they're environmental threats, you know, and, and any threats in general, but in particular, we're talking about the environment. So I think it's making sure that people in uh, positions of authority, whether they're elected or appointed, have to be aware of the most pressing issues in their various communities and have to be willing to enact programs that provide education and opportunity for people to learn about these issues. Because if you tell someone, hey, you know, the stream that's running by your house is contaminated, you know, or your water is contaminated from, you know, with fracking chemicals or, you know, anything like that, or your air that you breathe is now, um, you know, you have more smog here than they do in the, the richer neighborhoods, that doesn't go over well. Nobody wants their kids to be raised in an area that is unsafe and, and wants to live their lives in an area that's unsafe. But unless we amplify the voices of people who are affected unless we clear a path and get out of the way and let them speak and then we're willing to listen and provide them with support we're never going to see change you said that climate change also poses a threat to national security a statement that quite literally makes republicans laugh could you explain your position on this you know it's funny because i grew up with republican fbi agent parents when my mom first heard me say that she said no it doesn't and i said wait 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 mom you're an expert on national security on terrorism and preparedness and i said now think about this you have people who are terrorists and they gain power when you have fewer resources so terrorists are more easily able to intimidate and hold communities hostage and get what they want when the community is impoverished or is under stress from different things so if you have the climate cutting resources away from people, the changing climate, like if you have less availability of food or of the resources that people use to make their livelihoods, that is going to basically embolden and strengthen terrorist organizations, which poses a threat to our national security. The last issue is we're going to see more people moving due to climate change. And, you know, I encountered a woman just a few weeks back at an event, and she had actually moved from northern New Jersey in the wake of Superstorm Sandy. And, you know, she said, I don't want to live there anymore. I realize my house is going to get destroyed every time one of these storms comes through. And so she moved here to Southern California. And yet we've got wildfire issues. So you're not going to be able to escape it. And actually, interestingly enough, the Department of Defense has acknowledged that climate change is a huge national security threat and they are preparing for it. The Republicans can scoff all they want, but it's an act. It's real. It's happening. And either you get with the program or we're going to be paying the price down the road. 
So you're 35 years old. Why do you think that your youth is a value when some folks might point to it and see you as unqualified or simply too young? I would encourage those folks to have a look at my resume and uh, also to think about the ages of various people who helped found our country and do um, pretty amazing things throughout history at a young age. Uh, It's a lengthy history of people doing that. Also, with the fact that we have more and more people who are under the age of 40 who are voting, who are buying houses who are having families, you know, they're they're trying to, you know, get married or have children or um, even just explore different career options. These are the people who are going to be impacted for the next several decades by the choices that are made right now. And having people making those decisions who are not in touch with the current situations that we're dealing with, people who don't know anything about, say, the social media landscape or social media marketing, trying to make policies about net neutrality or, you know, what how the internet even works. And they're trying to legislate things about the internet where a lot of commerce is done these days. It's just backwards. So I think we need people who have real lived experience, which is what I bring to the table, working in some of the most dangerous environments uh, on the planet. We need people like me and people from all different backgrounds. We need people who are single parents. We need people who work in janitorial fields, who are, you know, day laborers. We need people who are teachers and nurses. We need people who may work in manufacturing or store managers for retail sectors or retail sector jobs. We need those folks in our government because that is real America. It's not career politicians who sit there for 50 years and don't have a clue what's going on right now every day in our towns and our communities. You're also a queer woman. And as a queer woman myself, it's really great to see you running for office. For all the young queer listeners out there, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your journey with queerness and what it's like engaging in politics as a queer woman. It's very interesting for me because I, especially because I pass as straight all the time, uh, being married to a cis hetero man. (laughs) So, uh, but you know, for me, it's my whole vision, I guess, vision of of queerness for myself, which I know it's very personal for everybody, uh, is just that I see people as people. I don't see them as you know, your man, your woman, therefore I can or can't engage with you in a certain way, or perhaps you're trans and I can't, you know, it's for me, it's just people are people I'm attracted to who I'm attracted to. And I, you know, during college and afterwards, I had different relationships and I was able to date some amazing people. Uh, and I say people without respect to anybody's gender um, or, you know, gender identity. It's just for who they were. They were great people and uh, and some of them not so great, hence why I'm not <laughs> married to them. <laughs> but um, but for me, it's it shouldn't be an issue for any of us. It should just be part of who we are, but it shouldn't have to be something that people care about when you're running for office or trying to get a job or, you know, trying to serve in the military. You know, your who you love should be your business. And it just makes me so angry when people attack other people for their gender identity or for their sexual orientation. And I mean, I really see queer as a really awesome umbrella. It just means that you are not binary in in your preferences uh, or your orientation. And I think that we need people out there who are willing to say love is love and people are people. And so that's what I really want to stand for. I don't claim to speak for everybody, but I hope that perhaps some people who are nervous or are afraid of being their true selves, I don't want to be a role model, but if I'm going to be one, I would like to be a positive one for people who may be feeling afraid or alone um, or, or like they can't do something because of who they are. I say, 
because of who you are is why you can do things. Uh, something that makes it really hard for queer folks to run for office is that our identities are put up for debate. Even Democrats are willing to compromise on our rights and support anti-queer candidates if it means beating a Republican. You touched on this a little bit, but could you talk about how you deal with this dynamic as a candidate in the Democratic Party? You know, fortunately for me, at this stage, it hasn't really been an issue. Uh, so I can't really give you too much insight. I wish I could. But I figure that, you know, more than the party, this whole thing is about people. And I'm not a fan of blind loyalty to any party. You need to go in and be willing to speak uh, truth to power, as they say. And so my plan and my strategy is just, look, I'm me. You know, I'm a scientist. I am I am many things, uh, you know, and I am somebody who loves the world around me and loves the people in it. You know, if people who are going to show up at the ballot box say we want someone who talks about love and empathy and compassion and using facts and truth and evidence to get, you know, to get those things to be supported within our society, if they like that, they're going to vote for me. And I think we are at a, a day and age in our in our country's evolution where people are willing to see their candidates, their leaders, prospective leaders as as whole people a little bit more if we are able to get the message out. So my big emphasis is on, look, here's who I am. Like, I'm me. I believe in certain things and I don't believe in others. And if you like it, great. <laughs> so lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? So uh, there are a lot of different ways um, that people can engage, even if you don't live anywhere near Southern California. You can actually go on my website. So the website's easy. I'll start with that. It's jess2018.com. So jess2018.com. If you just type in slash uh, forward slash volunteer, you can actually volunteer. There's a link to it on the page. But if you want to go directly there, jess2018.com slash volunteer. Of course, on there, it's got all sorts of different information about me and about you know my family and about why I'm running and what my positions are on some of the key issues. And then if you want to keep up with me on Twitter, I'm very vocal on Twitter. It's uh, jessphoenix2018. And then Facebook is facebook.com slash jessphx. And then I'm also on Instagram. Uh, but the campaign one is it's pretty okay. You know, it's not super, super thrilling. Um, the Instagram Instagram game gets like a solid B plus, uh, but it's uh, Jess Phoenix 2018. I do have a personal one. People can follow it if they really want. It's just sort of random science stuff and my pets, but that's Volcano Jess official. They're welcome to do that too. <laughs> okay, great. Well, fortunately, I think this interview was more than B plus. It's really great, of course, to see a millennial running for office. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Jordan. It's been a pleasure being here with you. And I just appreciate so much everything you're doing because we need more people getting the word out like what you're up to. So keep it up. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Again, I'm Jordan Valerie, Editor-in-Chief of Millennial Politics. You can find me on Twitter and Medium at Jordan Val Allen. Make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media, subscribe to our newsletter, and check out our merch at millennialpolitics.co. And stay tuned for the next episode of our podcast. Thanks for listening.